Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study class led by Pastor Jim Otte. For this episode and the next few episodes, we are doing something a little bit different. Instead of jumping right into a new series, we are unearthing early recordings of the podcast to bring to you. These were recorded during a whole different series, and we can't start with part one because we didn't think to record it at the time. So if you're new to the podcast or returning and thinking, why are we on part four when this is a whole different series? Don't worry, you didn't miss an episode or anything. We are just jumping around a little bit and offering a sneak peek from past classes. So without delaying any further, here is a part of a series titled Living the Life of Jesus's Beloved. Enjoy. All right, so today, miracle of all miracles, we're actually starting chapter four of Philippians, huh? Pretty, uh, pretty good. And so we're going to be looking at verses one to seven. But before we get to that, let's take a look at just a little review of the things that we uh, touched on last week. All right. So the first one was that Christians live in the already, but the not yet. What's that talking about? We live in the already, but the not yet. What does that mean? We're of this world, but not of this world. Yeah, that we, you know, we already have salvation. We already have the benefits of, of the blessings of a relationship with God. We have all of that, but we're not yet where? In heaven. Yeah. So we're subject to the frustrations of this life. We're subject to the brokenness of the world. We're, we're subject to our own, you know, the issues that we have to deal with. And so the value of knowing that already, but not yet means that we have something else to look forward to that is way greater than anything that we would have now. I think one of the things that happens sometimes in life is that we become very enamored with this world maybe to the point of thinking or feeling that this is all there is. And why is this all there is? I mean, either in a negative way or positive way. So the already, but the not yet reminds us that we're not really citizens of this world. We're citizens of the world to come. And that is the great blessing and the great gift for us. Okay. Number two, regrets from the past can overwhelm your present. So focusing on eternity can give you the courage to repair the past to make amends in the present, and to celebrate uh, the future. You'll hear a lot of people say, and maybe you even have even said this yourself, is they'll say, well, you can't do anything about the past. You can't change it. Okay? Why would somebody say that? <laughs> yeah, because you just brought up the past with them, right? That's what you did, all right? And sometimes people do that when they're upset with each other. They say, yeah, and that reminds me of the 20 other things you did, all right? And then usually that's when somebody says, well, you can't do anything about the past. You can't change it, all right? But what you can do is repair it. You can't. That's why it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to be willing to look at the past and say, yeah, I can't change what I did, but I can change the effect that it had. Or I can at least repair the damage that I did. And so in the Christian world, the way that we repair damage is that's what we do every Sunday morning. It's called confession absolution. Now, it's not that formal when we're with each other. Basically, when we're with each other, we say... Stuff like, I realize that when I did that, I hurt you, and I feel bad for hurting you, and will you forgive me for hurting you? And then what's the follow-up on that? 
I forgive you. Okay. It's amazing to me how people, even in the Christian community, do not say the words, I forgive you. What they say is, oh, it's okay. Well, okay. You know, I guess I got over it. That's what we say. That's like stupid stuff. We should be saying what the Bible says we should say. We should be saying, I forgive you. Because what I forgive you does actually is it closes the book or it closes the chapter on that particular moment, on that particular issue. <laughs> Very powerful words that oftentimes we just simply fail, uh, fail to use. Okay. Uh, number three, patterns of godly habits provide a good example for other people to copy. That should be like the, the no brainer of the whole day here. Right. Right. Obviously. But you know, when people are copying you, when people are watching you, they're catching from you those things that work. They're catching from you the way that you're handling things. And so very often the, the Christian witness that we give off is less about what we say and it's more about what we do. And when we do it and we do it repeatedly, that creates a habit and habits are, are good things to have if they are godly. And then the last one is taking piano lessons improves your brain functioning. <laughs> now notice I didn't say doing piano recitals. Piano recitals do, does not improve your brain functioning, but it does. Uh, but, and I have evidence to prove it right here. If you wanted to go online, you could check this out. And I uh, actually was like, you know, looking through doing research on the Internet. And uh, it says science just discovered something amazing about what childhood piano lessons did to you. Right. <laughs> yeah. And actually what they've discovered is, is that because you're playing with both hands, you're doing this and you're doing this and you're doing this, you're doing all that. What happens is, is that that grows the connectors in your brain. Yeah. So there you go. So I don't know. Remind me again, how many of you took piano lessons? Yeah. See, all of us did. So the IQ of this class <laughs> ought to have elevated as a result of piano lessons. And then, what? You didn't ask how many people enjoyed it. Okay, I'll ask that question. How many of you enjoyed taking piano lessons? How many of you went to extraordinary destructive ways to get out of doing piano recitals? <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. See how creative you are as a result of this. So, so here you go. Here's the proof that you want right here. Um, taking piano lessons. And then of course, practicing your piano is, uh, is the big thing. Okay. Very good. Let's get into our lesson for today. If it sounds to you like I'm shouting, it's because I am, but it, it's also because my ears are a little clogged up today and I can't tell if I'm talking loudly or if I'm talking softly. So I'm just going to go with loudly and then Philip, you can turn down the volume on me then anyway too. Okay. All right. Well, let's get into chapter four, verse one. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice how he does it. He starts out with my beloved and he ends with my beloved. What's his point? He means it. Yeah, this is emphasis for him to do that. Okay. And he's focusing on the fact that not only are they, the Philippians, his beloved, but also Jesus is his beloved. This takes us, takes us kind of all the way back to one of the primary themes of this whole letter. 
is that we are God's beloved and we are God's beloved by, by virtue of what he has loving us and creating us and then sending us on Jesus to be our savior. But the moment when he declared that to be true about us and that we can lean on that, that promise every single day is at our baptisms. That's when Jesus said, you are my, my beloved. And how we know that is that's what God said of Jesus at his baptism. Remember the words? This is my son whom I love, my beloved, right? With him, I am well pleased. So in that, in that same sense, we are joined to Christ in our, in our baptism and through our baptism. And we can then claim the very same promises that God made to Jesus he makes to us particularly the promise that you are never alone. No matter what you deal with in life, no matter how you feel, because we all feel lonely, we all feel alone at times, we even experience being alone. But that's when God says, nope, you are mine, you belong to me, with you I am. And so because of that, then we also receive the gift of and have access to, through faith, to, through the, to the power of his grace. It's the power of his grace that really enables us to do the hard stuff in life, to resist temptation, if you will, or to shift our thinking away from earthly things into heavenly things. How many of you were in early service this morning? Okay, lots of you were. So the, the story of, you know, Jesus starts to tell his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die and then he's going to rise again. Well, apparently they didn't hear the rise again part, yeah. right? Because, and that's kind of how that is. I wish Jesus had said, I've got some bad news and I've got some good news. I wish he would have said that, but he didn't say it that way. And so he just said, I'm going to have to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And I think that's all they heard. Because then what does Peter do? He says, over my dead body, this is not going to happen to you. Of course, we know what happened with Peter later, right? So he was kind of prone to say stuff before he thought about stuff. But, but then what did Jesus do? Boy, he jumped right down Peter's mind right there. Now, he, he was attributing Peter's words to Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. But then what did he say? You're not thinking of heavenly things, but you're thinking of earthly things. Yeah, it's human to think of earthly things. That's our frame of reference, isn't it? And it's very hard when you are struggling with something. It's very hard when you are suffering a loss. It's very difficult, maybe impossible, if you feel crushed in any moment, humanly speaking, to think of heavenly things. The benefit that we are to each other, a benefit to each other, is that we can do what? We can bring the perspective of heavenly things to each other even when it's almost impossible for us to even retain that, much less remember it and lean on it. That's part of the value or part of the blessing that we get from the body of Christ. And so all of that is this beautiful thing that happens as a result of being the beloved. Now, what he says is, he says, you are my joy and my crown. I kind of looked this up a little bit. The word crown is Stephanos, which is a festival wreath. So you probably have seen pictures, you know, in the Olympics and that sort of thing way back in the, like when it first started. Anybody that would run a race and would win, they would be, be given this Stephanos, this crown, this uh, wreath that belonged to the, uh, to the winner. 
But what Paul is using this, this word, the joy and crown, that's a term of affection. So Paul is really saying that, that you all are special to me. You, I love you. You're, you're my friends. We're friends in Christ is what he's saying. So the beloved life principle number 20 is when you constantly remind people that they are a gift to you, G-I-F-T, gift, that they are a gift to you, they tend to live up to that intention. And you can more easily celebrate the joy that they bring. We talked last week about this idea of setting an intention, all right? The idea being that when you're about to go into a task or go into a meeting with somebody or go into your day, for example, or a challenge that you have, the idea is that you can set, you can set an intention for yourself that would be either positive or negative, It can be either one that sort of looks forward to or seeks to find the good in it, or you can set a negative intention which says, oh, this is going to be crummy and it's going to blow up in my face and I'm going to feel like an idiot, all right? You can say that and sometimes we do. But the idea of setting an intention then means that Sometimes we are doing self-fulfilling prophecies with ourselves, right? Is we're almost setting ourselves up for whatever the outcome is going to be. And it's because we sort of programmed it into ourselves. Well, the same thing happens with each other. So if the perspective that I have toward you or that you have toward me is that I'm looking at you as a gift, And I keep saying it over and over again, not that I use the same word all the time, but it would be that that's the sentiment that I have about you. Eventually, what's going to happen? You're going to start living up to that. The same is true negatively. What if the words that I use, and I I think the point here is that words matter, right? If the words that I keep using about you or about somebody else are more negative, If I use words like worthless and what good are you and stuff like that, okay? And that's the only thing that anybody ever hears from me. Then it's likely that that person's going to do what? They're going to live up to that, which is a very low standard, okay? So the point is, is that words matter. And we see that all through St. Paul's letters when he's writing even to people that are a pain in the neck, people that are frustrating him so much and he's so worried about their spiritual life and he's so frustrated about all the dumb things they're doing. Even those people, what Paul says about those people is, is that you are redeemed. You are God's gift. You are these precious people because he knows that words matter and in particular words about which we describe each other and to some degree uh, program with each other. So he says, stand firm in the Lord. That is a theme that's persistent all the way through the New Testament and also through, uh, through Philippians. So stand firm means the idea that when you're being assaulted by the evil one, when there are worldly things coming at you, when temptation is, uh, is slamming you left and right, stand firm. Now here's the thing that we need to remember about stand firm. Standing firm was never intended to be an individualistic pursuit. It never was. And that's one of the things that we as Americans have trouble with. Because we worship the idea of independence. 
It's all about doing your own thing. It's all about standing tall. It's all about John Wayne. It's about all those things. And it's not about how we do that together. And so the idea here of standing firm is that it's not that you're standing firm alone. It's that you're standing firm in a formation with other believers. And so I put the little picture here of the phalanx. That's something we have talked about before in other classes. This was a military formation that was designed to be interdependent. Its greatest strength was, was that you had to take part of your shield and be willing to shift it to cover the guy next to you or the guy behind you or the guy that was way back there. And it was designed so that you could, you could survive and perhaps even have victory in the face of an enemy that had overwhelming numbers. And so you look at that little picture, it kind of looks like a turtle, kind of looks like a tortoise shell. The overlapping nature of it looks more like fish scales. That's the way those shields were designed. They were designed to be that way so that you would shift your shield for the benefit of everybody else. Its greatest strength was that. That was also its greatest weakness. Because where's the vulnerability then in phalanx? Is if one person says, I'm not shifting my shield. If one person says, that shield is for me, and I don't know about those other guys, but it's for me. Then that's where the hole is, and that's where the enemy's arrows get in, and spears, and all those kinds of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So when you read um, Ephesians 6, where it talks about put on the armor of God, you know, and all the stuff that goes with it, okay? See, we always have seen pictures and, and, you know, to some degree to illustrate the, the armor. But most of the pictures that you see are of a soldier standing alone. That's not what it was meant to be. This was a, the armor was designed for the formation. And that's what we have to get through our heads. Is that we're in this together. We have each other's back. And the idea then is that you submit your own desire to be your own person, right? To be in control and in charge. You submit that to the sake of the formation. And that's what the, how the word submit is used in Ephesians. So when it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what is it talking about? Shift your shield. Shift your shield. And then the next verse, which everybody loves, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. What does that mean? Shift your shield. Shift your shield. See, that's what it's about. Because we stand together, nobody stands alone. If you stand alone, you get killed. So that's kind of a cool thing. Any thoughts about that? Um, the military today still uses the phalanx idea. If you've seen, uh, you could go on the internet and you can kind of Google that and you'll see these formations they have like with Navy ships and airplanes and all kinds of stuff that the idea is that every weapon on every ship is designed to protect it and the formation. So they're very, they're very uh, technical about that, very specific about that. And we can learn some things from that uh, in our own uh, spiritual walk. Okay, next page. Oh, yep. That's why the, um, the people coming from the east to the west would circle their wagons. Circle their wagons? Mm-hmm. To protect each other. Mm-hmm. Safety in numbers. I mean, it's kind of like that, yeah. Because if you get called off then you get sifted. Yeah, you get, you get hurt. So good point. Okay, now let's go to Philippians 4, 2 and 3. Oh, yeah, Richard. We have an answer to that question. At the bottom. Oh, was there a question on there that I skipped? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. How might we train and drill in our faith community? Yeah. 
And I thought the article in the Lutheran Witness, those five keys, yeah, is the is the answer. Okay, you want to read those keys? How many of you got the Lutheran Witness this month? Oh, just overwhelming numbers of you did. Yeah. Okay. Actually, it's really a good article this, this year. I mean, this year, <laughs> this month too. Uh, but why don't you read those out loud? I, this is an interview from Roosevelt Gray, who is the, he's a pastor in Missouri Senate, and he's the director of the uh, uh, Black Ministry um, Caucus, do they call it that? Black Ministry, I forget what they call it. But anyway, he's a, a good guy, and he had, had five things to say about ways that would answer this sort of we're in this together idea. Yeah, the first one is listen. Listen. Second one is be winsome. Be winsome. Um, three is to get out there. Get out there. Four is to speak up. Speak up. And number five, love sinners. Love who? Sinners. Sinners. <laughs> Gosh, I, well, I got four out of five. Yeah. Yeah, love sinners. No, as opposed to being critical and judgmental and all those kinds of things. Yeah, those are excellent, excellent stuff. All right, well, let's now, can we go to the next page? Can we do that? All right, good. Thank you for keeping me honest here. All right, now we go to verses two and three. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, isn't it just like Paul to do this? He names these two women that are in the church, and they are in sort of a conflict with each other. And then nowhere else in the Bible is, are their names mentioned. So nobody knows who they are and really nobody knows anything except that their names are here. And the only thing they're noted for is the fact that they're in conflict and we don't know how it turns out. So when we get to heaven, look up somebody whose name is Euodia and Syntyche, and then we can check that out to see how did it turn out? We want to know. All right. Is it surprising to you that there was conflict in the church? Among Christians. See, we would say, oh, yeah, we get it. That would happen in the pagan churches, right? Or that would happen, you know, among people that weren't truly, uh, you know, disciples of Jesus. No, these are people who have shared in the cause of the gospel. These are people whose names are in the book of life. We'll talk about that in a second. These are people who have shared in the struggle that Paul also had in not just starting this congregation, but then also maintaining it and, uh, and sustaining it, all right? I mean, so one way to understand that is to know that the devil goes to church too, right? Should be no surprise, we should know that as well, all right? But also because we are still sinful, broken people. Yeah, we're redeemed by Christ. We are baptized. We are new, cre uh, new creations. But we daily return to the promises of our baptism because daily we still struggle with the uh, vestiges of the, uh, of the sinful nature. All right? So beloved life principle number 21 is it takes the power of the grace, G-R-A-C-E, the grace of God to sacrifice your self-interest for the sake of harmony in the church, especially if what? That's right. Especially if you think you're right. And then especially if it turns out that you were right. See, many of us think we're right, correct? Yeah. And then, you know, you find out later that, well, I wasn't exactly right. So then we're kind of humbled. 
But what about when you thought you were right and then it turns out that you were right? Oh, what a sweet moment that is, let me tell you, all right? But that's when it's, it's very difficult to sacrifice your own self-interest in that moment. What would be a, a self-interest when you, when you thought you were right, you fought for your right, and it turned out you were right? What would be a self-interest that you would have in that moment? Self-interest. Okay, sort of gloat a little bit and kind of, you know, have that sort of little bounce in your step and then sort of kind of look down on other people sort of idea. Okay, that would be a self-interest. Yeah? Well, you want to make sure everybody else realizes that you were right. Yes, especially if it's so rare in your life and you have other people reminding you how you aren't. Yes. So uh, we were having this discussion the other day in the car, my wife and I. She's not here. You notice that today. <laughs> because, because baseball spring training has started, and she's reminding me that the Cubs won in 2000 and what year was that? 2000, <laughs> 2016, yeah. And that the Rangers have not yet won, even though they have been to the World Series twice, which doesn't count because you didn't win if you're a Cubs fan. Okay. So this is one of those ongoing conversations that we're now having, and I'm working very hard to uh, have the beloved life principle at work in my life when it comes to, uh, when it comes to baseball. All right. So Paul is urging what? He's urging these two ladies to live in harmony in the Lord. What this is talking about, Greek-wise, is to have the same mind. Now, how do you have disagreements with each other at the same time that you have the same mind? How, how do you accomplish that? What is that talking about, have the same mind? Well, talk about it. Hmm? Just talk about it and see what comes up. Okay, so maybe part of it is is that in their conflict, they stop talking to each other, which sometimes happens, you know, and then we stop talking. And then when we stop talking, and then more significantly, we stop listening, which is kind of goes together. Well, then what happens is we start assuming that we know why somebody did something. You ever, like, had that happen? Like, you, you know what happened but you don't know why it happened, right? And so when you don't know why it happened, you just make something up. And you make something up based on what you think it is, but the reality is is that it, couldn't, it may not even be close to what you, th what you thought it was, but you just said it, on, you, you thought that's what it was because that's just what it had to be because that's how that person is, right? Okay? That's what we do. Or if that person is, uh, endeavors to avoid you or doesn't speak to you, and you don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. So it, trying to find out the answer, well, you know, just because. Yeah. Well, and then if they avoid and you can't um, connect with them, then we just assume they don't like you. Yep. Yeah. I just assume they're wrong. That's all I do, right? <laughs> that's, that's a whole lot easier, really, actually. Okay, so when we think about um, these kinds of conflicts and things that go on in churches, because, see, that's what was going on. And what we need to remember is that Paul's not afraid of conflict. Good Lord, he was at the center of a lot of it, all right? Spiritual conflict and, and doctrinal conflict, uh, conflict and that sort of thing. So it's not that Paul is saying he's afraid of conflict, but what he is saying, he's saying that the nature of conflict is that if you allow it to go on and on, 
Now it becomes something that's divisive. It has the potential of fracturing that unity. Think of the phalanx, for example. How would those Roman soldiers have trained in phalanx? How would they have done that? Only on nice 60-degree days, right? Yeah, only when the breeze was blowing toward them, right? Yeah, certainly not when it was raining. Certainly not when it was the heat of the day. Certainly not out in the desert. Oh, no, that would have been way too hard. No, that's what they did. They trained in the hardship of the environment so that when they got into the battle, the conflict, they could do what? They could still stand firm. They could still stay together. Okay? And that's what Paul is very concerned with is that in this uh, conflict that they were having, that they would give in to their self interests and they would sacrifice the interests of the whole. And that's what often happens in church life. All right? So when I'm talking with churches about some of the conflict, Uh, or some of the potential for those things that would bind us together, there's also things that would, uh, could potentially um, divide us as well. So when we talk about church life, what we're basically talking about is the mission of the church, the vision that we have for the ministry in, in its place, the things that we do in that church, and the personalities that we have to put up with. Where do you think the most disagreement occurs in church life of those four? <laughs> Personalities. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. One of the blessings of being at Messiah and being in a staff like ours, we have like 15 people in our staff, and, and uh, just because we're all professional church workers does not preclude us from uh, having egos and things like that. But we've, and part of it is we've just been together for, for quite a while, which really helps. But it's so wonderful and so refreshing to serve in a church where the staff is together on this stuff, even though we have varied personalities, okay? We have dragons, we have turtles, and we have bees, right? We have all those things and a few, and a few squirrels uh, scattered in there as well, right? <laughs> we, we have that, and we chase rabbit trails. I mean, you know, so we do, we have the full zoo in our, uh, in our staff, But we're very unified in what our mission is. What's the mission of the church? Go make disciples. There it is. Go make disciples. Do it by baptizing and teaching and all that kind of stuff. What's the vision that we have for for our church in this place at this time? Spread the word, word, share the light, make a difference. There's all kinds of different words that we have for that. And then that reflects our practices, how we do what we do, you know, how we do church, how we do worship how we do communion, how we do pastoral care, how we do all those things, right? That's what it reflects. And this is the one that's oftentimes the X factor because personality gets into the issue of how I relate to you, right? How we talk to each other, how we, how we connect with each other. What do we do when we get a little, you know, annoyed with each other? What do we do? How do we do that? And so all of that goes together. And so even though we don't know what the specific issue was with Yodia and uh, Syndicke, whatever it was, was big enough for Paul to hear about it because where is he when this is going on? He's in Rome, right? And this is going on in Philippi. So, and we know how word traveled in those days. There was no social media, right? It would take a while to get there. So whatever the conflict was, it was significant enough for Paul to be concerned about it and to say, hey, you know, 
I want these two ladies to, to get that together and, and work it out. But if they can't do it, then what does he say? He says, help them, help them. So the question that I put there is what helps can Christians give when their fellow church members are in conflict with each other? Because see, that becomes then a prospect of the body. The body has something to gain from that, i.e. we're all in this phalanx, you know, and if you're in the phalanx, it's kind of, you know, you're kind of crowded. And if somebody doesn't like somebody else and you're stepping on my toes and, you know, we're elbowing each other and all that kind of stuff, that could break apart the phalanx. So how does the body help individuals in the body? Yes. One of the things you don't want to do is take sides when two people have a conflict, because then that's when you get a big decision, a yeah. big division. Okay. There's, so it's not just two people yes. in conflict. It can be two large groups that's right. in conflict. That's right, because what if that's my friend? Yeah. Yeah, so taking sides is, we would say, don't do that. Okay, yeah. What if it's like your relative, Oh, now that's a little tra- That's difficulty, right? And in some churches where maybe it's a little bit of a smaller church, and if you've ever like been in a smaller church, sometimes that's the case, is that the church itself is like one big giant family. And so, you know, if you like look crossways at one person, then you got six other, you know, the clan that are mad at you. And since, I, since you're the pastor, then you would really hear about it. So, you know, sometimes... Taking sides is expected as a sign of loyalty in the family. But see, again, that's self-interest. That's not thinking of the whole. That's thinking of just our group or our uh, family or our clan. Yeah. Well, I I would suspect one of the things they did in the phalanx is they would probably shift the soldiers around. You couldn't always be, okay, this is my my buddy. I'm always going to be next to them. Oh, I don't know. And make them do that. So maybe if you just shift, make everybody change the pews that they sit in in church. <laughs> oh, yeah. Change the pews. Oh, that is awesome. Okay, Gina. 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 No, now Gina. Gina, you're being recorded right now. Gina, uh, we'll start with you. Okay. And you can sit somewhere else instead of where you always sit and then Marion can join you. That would be perfect. I love it. I can't wait to see how that goes next Sunday. Nobody else would know where to sit. Oh, oh, nobody would know where to sit. Oh yeah, that's it. You are the, you are the beacon. You are the North Star. The North Star, and you have to sit there, yes. Well, but then they come up to my parents and they're like, are y'all having a fight with Gina? Why is she sitting way over there? Why is she sitting next to Well, that would happen. That could happen. That's right. So I don't know. Um, Mike, put you on the spot. Ex-Army, Phalanx. How do they train for that? Do they uh, shift it around, or does everybody stand next to the guy that they've been training next to the whole time? Uh, repetition is going to be a key, so they're going to stay with the third. Oh, you're off the hook. Stay in your pew. Stay in your pew. Okay, so, be, so the... the the connection to the guy next to you, the buddy next to you, is that's who you're depending on, and that's who you're, in some sense, fighting for, I suppose. I mean, there's some sense that I'm not going to let that guy down is probably what that is. And when everybody in the group is thinking that way, you have a cohesive unit then. 
Right. Oh, oh, excellent insight. Yeah. There, there's one little flaw in that. Uh, in what? In what I'm saying? In what St. Paul is saying? Are you saying that? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, Gina. Uh, oh, Gina said, it. yeah. The first time we attended Messiah when I was still in Richardson, yeah. we came to church and we said, it looks like a nice congregation, an interesting, good building and all. You came to we church. We sat down on a pew and people, and a lady came to us and said, sorry, you're going to have to move. That's our pew. Oh, and oh, we said, well, God. that's the last time we'll be here. Yeah. <laughs> we started, we, uh, at the, we, we moved. moved yeah. And at the end of the service, uh, there were enough people that came and said, so, I don't think I know you. Yeah. We said, we just visiting. Well, so so glad to have you. Yeah. And we didn't see that other lady uh, <laughs> again that we could say anything. Yeah. So it, it was the rest that came. It was the rest. Yeah. And that's the key. See, the rest become part of the healing. They become part of the repairing. It doesn't undo what that person did or said. And, you know, I mean, sometimes what happens is people say stuff and then they go later, they go, oh, why did I say that? We thought she was kidding. Yeah. Oh, you thought she was kidding. Yeah. Nobody kids about that kind of thing. No, it, it, it Good heavens. You know, there are some sacred cows in the church <laughs> and young pastors have to learn all of this. Number one is banners, sacred cow. Number two is where you put the baptismal font. If for a hundred years it's been over here in the way and you think, you know, it'd be so much better if it was like over there because then I wouldn't be tripping over it. So you move it. Oh, you would think we've just done a terrible thing. That's number two. And number three is where people sit. Yep. Yeah, it is. We, we purposely change pews one Sunday just to confuse the pastor. In well, if you do that now, it goose me up too, because I'm used to seeing you right there. And if you're not right there, I'm thinking, oh gosh, you must be sick or, you know, something like that. So there is a little bit of, we all get kind of used to that, don't we? All right. Yeah. But again, see, it's just that, it's that sort of idea that, that, that that's the hard thing about the whole that that's why self-interest is it, it, self-interest isn't always selfishly driven. Sometimes it's just that that's what we got used to doing, right? I mean, that's where I always sit, and you know, my friends are all around me, and you know, I mean, that's how we do it. But what Paul is reminding us is that sometimes that kind of self-interest breeds conflict, and if it does, then we need to do something with it. Instead of just sort of standing back and saying, boy, they're really getting into it. I'm sure glad it's not me. See, that of what value is that? None. Now, does that mean that we should all just sort of like jump on that guy and get into the middle of something? No. In our church, we have people that are trained and also authorized to help with that kind of stuff. So we have elders and we have pastors and we have, you know, we, we have mechanisms for that to occur so that it can be done decently and in good, good order. And it doesn't just turn into this giant, you know, we're just going to get rid of that person or do something worse. So, so that we have, but it's important for us to do it because if we don't do it, then what happens is what was happening in Paul's day. Yeah, Carl. I take exception with that statement about short slides. Okay. That's the core problem today. What? He's saying, he's saying that the core problem today is we're not taking sides. Okay, so you're going to need to explain what you mean. Stood up and took sides. Oh, okay, he I see what you're saying. Scripture. Luther stood mm -hmm. up and took sides. Mm -hmm. He said, Scripture. 
Okay, so let's let's qualify it. choice today. We have to take some. Well, let's qualify it, okay? Because the qualifier of it, the qualifier is, is that is it scripture versus non-scripture? Okay, that's an important side to take. What we're talking about here is in terms of personalities, okay? What we're talking about here is the idea that that because my friend got hurt or because my family member got got you know offended, well then I have to automatically go on their side to give them a uh, uh, a bolstering, if you will. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, no, I you're absolutely right. Paul was very uh, very firm on the idea that when something is a salvation issue or something is a uh, a doctrinal issue, yeah, there. He was very clear about that. Great point. Stand in your phalanx. Yeah, but do it. You do it as a do as as a phalanx. Yeah, Bob. I just like to comment on the first two sentences here. He uses "in the Lord" twice. Yes. We sometimes forget why we came to church. Oh yes. Okay. So sometimes we have self-interest in coming to church in the first place. Correct. Right. And it's easy to do that because a lot of our self-interest needs get met when we come to church. Can you get your social needs met coming to church? Yeah. But what if that's the only reason? Then the spiritual part of it gets sort of severed from the social. Right. Is it good for your business to come to church? It might be depending on where the church is located and how big the town is and everybody is Lutheran and that sort of thing. Yeah, it could be good for business. Right. Now, can you use it for that? Yes. Yeah, sure, of course. What if that's the only thing? Then you're going to sacrifice doctrinal positions and practices in the church for your own business benefit. And now you're going to be making compromising decisions on your doctrine because you say, I don't think it's good for my business to stand up for something that's wrong or stand up for something that's right in opposition to the things that are wrong. Make sense? Okay. Other self-interest? Yeah. Oh, I guess oh, it, I was comments? thinking about it. Yeah. I think that we should listen. You, you think we should listen? Yeah. We, we need to... Somebody needs to listen to both parties to yeah. find out what their problem, what yeah. the problem is. Yeah. Because yeah. if yeah. you don't listen, you can't fix. <laughs> well, and really, actually, probably most of us listen just not long enough. Okay. And so what we forget is that one of the ways that you can really value people is by listening to them and not trying to jump in too quickly and fix them just to listen. So a lot of what I do professionally, you know, uh, most of you know that I'm a counselor, so I do counseling, but some of you might also know that one of the things I do for the Texas district is I wade into churches or entities that are in conflict. I've got uh, waiters that uh, come up to here. <laughs> And I usually am stepping in it pretty thick and pretty deep, actually. And so that's one of the things I do. And so one of the very first things I do is get uh, parties together individually, and I listen. Because I need to find out. i got to find out. what I, I'm trying to understand what it is about your position and the interests that you have and why they're so important to you. And then I go to another group or another entity and do the same thing. That's the very first thing I do. Um, because going in with preconceived ideas of, oh, I know what's going on here. Oh, I know. That's shot me in the foot so many times I finally learned not to do it. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? Thank you. Pardon? Fronin. Yeah. Harmony. Yeah. Yeah. So that's this idea 
of harmony, how sweet harmony is when everybody's doing it together and how irritating it is to the ears when one person's sheet music isn't the same as everybody else's, <laughs> right? Yeah, Vicki and I went to the uh, symphony last night. We went to, uh, somehow I met this one lady there who's a violinist in the Fort Worth Symphony. And so we went and we're sitting there watching and I'm watching the symphony and the director is up there doing his thing. But it, it was so clear to me that everybody's sheet music was the same. <laughs> okay. And that's oftentimes what's missing. When, when, when half the group is playing to the tune of, of the scriptures and, and, and the interest of the whole, and then the other half of the group is playing the sheet music of self-interest, harmony will be accidental, and it's not, certainly not going to last very long. Okay? Yeah. So what do you do when you have the group and it's the self-interest people? What do you say? <laughs> well, here's what I say. I try to figure out what it is that's driving the self-interest. Is it selfishness or is it survival? Because there is a difference. Is that when people feel threatened and their survival or their way of making a living or their, you know, their beliefs or whatever it is, if that feels threatened, then we all go into self-preservation. So part of my goal is to help lower the anxiety enough where then maybe we can get out of self-preservation and we can actually think better and we can actually function better. So that, I take that a little different. I don't instantly go into the good guys and the bad guys or the uh, who's thinking Christian and who's not thinking Christian. Because frankly, I think that when, we are, when people are anxious and when they're in survival mode, most of us become very self-centered. When you're in survival mode, imagine that you're on an uh, inner tube in the ocean surrounded by sharks, and there's only a room for one person on the inner tube, and there's two of you. What are you going to do? Your instinct will be get rid of the other person because you can save yourself. That's our instinct, okay? It never occurs to us maybe to jump over the side, and we both hook an arm in there, and then part of your buoyancy is keeping you afloat. Uh, it's not doing anything for the sharks, of course, but, but, um, yeah, but, but again, see, that's, the, the, what do you try, that's what you try to do, okay? So I try to do that in churches that are fighting, in um, schools, in marriages, in wherever. That's just kind of how I do it, okay? All right, guess what? We need to stop right here, so we will pick it up next week with the Book of Life. Let me just spring it on you. You're all in the book of life, okay? Just wanted to clarify that for you. And then we'll get into the rejoice stuff for, uh, for next week. All right, very good. Very good. All right, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that, you, uh, that you've given to us today and the fact that we had the opportunity to share in your word. Your, your word just nails us every week, Lord. It, it does that in a powerful way, but it does it in a good way to remind us that we are not, we don't stand alone. We stand with each other and we stand with each other with you uh, in the middle of our phalanx saying to us that we are your beloved. We, we pray, Lord, that you would enable us and empower us to lean on each other to, and, to, and to be there for each other in the way that uh, each of us needs to be able to withstand temptation in the world. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us. Give us opportunities where they, uh, where they present themselves to share the gospel with others. 
that, uh, that they too can join the, uh, the comfort, the assurance, and, uh, and also the joy of, uh, of serving you. Watch over us until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.